From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Single-use plastic can be hard to avoid, even for the most vigilant, like one woman we met who kept every piece of plastic trash she generated as a reminder. We've got cheese in here, bath salts. Even if it looks like paper, it usually has a plastic lining and there's no way to get around it. Well, Colorado lawmakers are tackling plastic pollution this session. We'll learn about their efforts, plus a plastic news quiz. Then a postcard from the Four Corners my colleague Avery Lill's been reporting there this week. And later, not one of them grew up with bluegrass, but they've been hailed as Denver's best bluegrass band. We won't regret the chances we took, but the ones we didn't take. We'll reel in all four members of Trout Steak Revival after the news. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Plastic is ubiquitous, and so is plastic waste. It's an issue we've been covering. Maybe you remember Erica Prather, the woman who saved every piece of plastic packaging she generated. I didn't want to throw it away because I wanted to know what it was like to live with my own trash. My way of thinking of it is sort of this moving meditation of if I'm not living with it, someone else is living with it. Someone else is living with the effects of it, whether it's being incinerated or in a landfill or whatever, or wildlife is living with it in their belly. And so it's not only an experiment of living with your waste, but also how much it's kind of always thrown at me, even if I'm trying to avoid it. Well, state lawmakers are sensing people's plastic pangs, and they've introduced a number of bills on this subject. Colorado Matters producer Exandra McMahon has been sorting through these proposals. Hi, Exandra. Hey, Ryan. Where should we begin? Uh, let's start with Senate Bill 10. It seems to be the biggest talker out of the bunch, and it would repeal an existing state law that bans local governments from banning plastic. Okay, hold on here. A bill to repeal a ban ban. Yes. Okay. <laughs> the existence of this law was really thrust into the spotlight last year when the Denver City Council tried to ban plastic grocery bags. Uh, they found out they could not legally do so because of this preemption law. And it was passed in 1989 and says no unit of local government shall require or prohibit the use or sale of specific types of plastic materials. And it goes on to specify containers and packaging. This is Senate Bill 10, and it would get rid of this statute. Correct. And that would allow communities across the state to enact their own plastic bans. But I mean, we've already seen forms of this for years with plastic bag fees in some places. It's got support from the Colorado Municipal League, though, uh, says its lobbyist Morgan Cullen. We represent cities and towns across the state. So for us, it's really a matter of local control. But the reason that it's uh, really come to the forefront now, I think, over the past five years is because we've seen, you know, specific issues related to single-use plastic products. You know, they can clog stormwater drains. They can clog recycling equipment. They can litter waterways, uh, and those turn into microplastics, you know, that cause problems with fish and wildlife. But, Alexandra, why in tarnation would the state have a plastic ban ban? So it actually started as a recycling incentive. Oh. Uh, Morgan Cullen gave me a mini history lesson. He said, in the late 1980s, plastic bottles were hitting the scene and Coloradans started realizing they needed a way to deal with all of this plastic, uh, but recycling was still in its infancy. So these bottles were just laying around all over the place, and some cities and towns actually considered banning plastic bottles. Uh, but the state stepped in and basically said, 
hold your horses. Let's focus on recycling. Local plastic bans aren't the answer. I mean, I can imagine that having different rules in each city might create a headache for business. Likely so. And and that concern still holds true today. It's why the Colorado Restaurant Association is not a fan of this bill. Nick Hoover of the CRA says this could potentially create a legal patchwork across the state where a chain restaurant in one location can use plastic straws or containers, but at a different location it can't. Hoover told me if there was going to be some kind of plastic ban, it should be statewide. We're taking the regulating of plastics in the state out of the hands of the legislature where there's a lot more resources that can be allocated to the scrutiny of what is particularly in a proposed bill or ordinance and putting that down into the hands of every single city council, town council, and county commissioner. If there happens to be a mistake, the unintended consequences could be dramatic because we're not just talking about single-use plastics in this legislation. We're talking about all plastics. And that's his other concern, how broad the language in this bill is, how it could open the door to bans on plastic beyond single-use. Okay, so that's one piece of legislation. Moving on to another, there's a bill, I understand, that does specifically call out single-use plastic. Yep, House Bill 1163. It would prohibit stores and restaurants from providing all kinds of single-use products to customers like bags, straws, those little plastic stir sticks, and styrofoam containers. This makes me think of a coffee shop I've been to where they use dried spaghetti as stirrers. Have you seen that? Oh, yes. Those are really unique. Yeah, and I see the wooden stir sticks very often. I guess the idea is to encourage something like that as an alternative, but uh, that would be a fairly sweeping law. Any chance that passes with other similar ones before it having failed? Well, one of the sponsors of this bill is Democratic Representative Alex Valdez of Denver. He thinks the climate for this kind of bill is changing. You have Democratic majorities in both houses. The governor's a Democrat. And Valdez thinks the issue is increasingly top of mind for Coloradans. The big difference this time is that consumer sentiment is changing. People all over the state are having kind of a desire to do things differently. And the environment is at the forefront of people's thoughts. And, you know, I think this is one of those rare issues that really bridges both sides of the aisle in the sense that whether you're an outdoorsman or a fisherman or a city dweller, pollution affects us all. Oh, and by the way, Valdez is sponsoring both of the bills we've been discussing. He sees them as kind of a package deal. To paraphrase him, this single-use ban would build the foundation and the repealing of the preemption law would rip the ceiling off. Okay, and I imagine there's similar opposition to the other. Uh, There's a similar bill this session, too, involving styrofoam. Right. House Bill 1162 would ban restaurants from using styrofoam takeout containers. Uh, This one failed last session. Different sponsors. But the language is exactly the same. You know, bills often take several years to pass. But it's interesting because Democrats had total control last year, too. So we'll see if it makes it further this time. And, Alexandra, there's a bipartisan bill on recycling that you're keeping an eye on. Tell us about this. Yeah. Republican Senator Kevin Priola of Adams County is sponsoring Senate Bill 55. It encourages recycling businesses using tax credits to create end markets. And what, what does that mean, end markets? So this is what happens after your recyclables get sorted and shipped overseas to turn into a t-shirt or another glass bottle, what have you. Uh, Well, Priola wants to see more of that repurposing happen right here in Colorado. Colorado has one of the lowest recycling rates in the nation, and there's a number of reasons for that. 
we're trying to have some homegrown manufacturing as well as remanufacturing of items that we currently just bury out on the Eastern Plains, a lot of which is in my district. And I've, I've personally talked to voters out there, kind of tired of all the trash trucks running back and forth and just filling up the pile. <laughs> so we're, we're trying to turn lemons into lemonade. And he wants to see then those recyclables turned into something valuable, but not having to go to China to do it, for instance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, Alexandra McMahon, you have agreed begrudgingly to take our weekly news quiz. Right. And we have plasticized it for you this week. Oh. Correct answers will get the sound of a sea lion rejoicing. I can't actually say for sure that that sea lion is happy. Total assumption on my part. If you answer incorrectly, you'll hear this. Yeah, that's someone crumpling and throwing away a single-use plastic bottle. Are you ready, Alexandra McMahon? I'm ready. Okay. The first plastic came as a result of a challenge in the late 1800s to develop a material that would replace A, rare woods, like ebony and sandalwood, B, tortoise shell, or C, ivory. What was plastic meant to replace? Um, I'm going to go with A. A, rare woods? Yeah. Oh. The answer is ivory. According to sciencehistory.org, the first synthetic polymer invented in 1869 by a man inspired... By an offer, a New York firm was offering $10,000 for anyone who could provide a substitute for ivory. Okay, true or false, only about 9% of all the plastic ever made has been recycled. 9%. Oh, I think that's true. You've made that sea lion very happy. That statistic emerged in 2018. 79% of plastic sits in landfills or litters the landscape. 12% has been incinerated. Okay, true or false, French priest Jean-Baptiste Plastique gave plastic its name. Father Plastique wore a crucifix around his neck made of an early plastic, uh, which was then called a polymer. Hmm, I think true. Oh. Yeah, I totally, totally made up that story. But Father Plastique thanks you. Alexandra, thank you. Yeah, no problem. That's Colorado Matters producer and reporter Alexandra McMahon on the plastic beat. Okay, now a Colorado company working to get rid of single-use plastic cups in stadiums. On Sunday, their product hits the big time at the Super Bowl. Ball Corporation of Boulder debuted aluminum cups at CU's Folsom Field last fall, and they'll be used at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami this Sunday. I spoke with Ball's Sebastian Seathoff back in September. I just have to confirm something. Your title is General Manager of Aluminum Cups. Do I have that right? Yeah, however unconventional it is, that's correct. Okay. Uh, Photos of these cups are deceiving because they look almost like heavy-duty... metal thermoses but that's not really the case right no it's not at all and uh, you know whenever we show to customers stakeholders and consumers they're always amazed when they hold it in their hand first and that's really where you realize the true power and potential of this innovation it's you know it, it weighs around 20 grams it's almost analogous to like a solo cup you know so so that's the amazing part of it um, you know it becomes very intuitive as a disposable solution like that Does that mean that it's weak? It's actually not weak because it's metal, right? So it's certainly much more sturdy than paper or plastic. 
so there's definitely some durability benefits to it. I, I find it fascinating that these cups are aluminum. They look, as I said, quite reusable. Uh, you say they're sturdy, but they're they're meant to be single use. So it took us about seven years to design this, and it was really focused on being a disposable solution, right? And that's because aluminum is the most sustainable substrate in the world, and you know, and and there's all kinds of other thoughts that went into that. But essentially, it was designed as a as a disposable solution. Now we realize that, given that it's metal, that the, some consumers may take it home. Uh, it's not dishwasher safe. It's safe to reuse the night off, if you will, or to refill it. But it's it's clearly designed as a disposable cup. Okay, we'll get back to that because I, I want to pick up on something you just said there. Aluminum is the most sustainable substrate, I think was the word you used, in the world. Yes. Help us understand why aluminum is that. You know, 75% of the world's aluminum ever produced is still in use today, right? So if you think about that, that alone tells you the story, right? So aluminum is is recycled 70%, plastic about 30%. It's the one substrate that as you recycle it and then melt it down, the molecular structure does not break down. When you compare it to plastic, right? So the molecular structure over time breaks down, right? So when you're talking plastic, you're really talking downcycling, not recycling. So in other words, a um, plastic cup can tomorrow become a yoga mat and uh, then maybe a t-shirt or a plastic bag, but it, it eventually ends up in a landfill. That's, that's the ultimate destination. And the same is pretty much true for all the other substrates. So aluminum is really the only substrate where you could truly say it keeps coming back. Like we like to say at Ball that well, you hold a, a can in your hand today, yeah. And 60 days later, it can be a can again. Yeah, it occurs to me that there's probably a diet right that I was drinking in the early 90s whose aluminum is still in the system, is what you're saying. That's correct. Okay. That's exactly how you should look at it, in particular when you look at beverage cans, by the way. Does this mean that we're not mining a lot of new aluminum? Or is it possible that if more people adopt Ball's technology... The demand for aluminum will go up, the system won't support it, and then you're going to result in a bunch of aluminum mining. Well, there, there will be some of that for sure. But again, if you think about avoiding the end game of having landfill after landfill after landfill, we would still advocate that that's a better solution, right? And, you know, we're in the beverage business and, and we are fortunate, you know, to be able to state that, you know, most of our cans come from recycled aluminum sources, so it's definitely the demand will go up, in particular with the plastic crisis that we have. But if you think about it long-term and strategically, aluminum is still the better solution for the planet. Okay, let's get back to these cups that are at Folsom Field. You made the decision that they be single-use. And I thought, okay, well, maybe you're working with a sustainable material, aluminum, but wouldn't you be even more sustainable if you created a reusable cup that people just returned at the end of the game that got washed and used again? Well, you know, we're, we are playing with that. I think you're looking at a um, some cost parameters there that simply don't fit the model in terms of what operators, stadium operators and concessionaires look for these days, right? Oh. So this is simply where, you, it, you know, 
you're losing the business model if you were to go down that path, you know. And there are other metal cups out there and steel and, and so forth. And, you know, the price point on this is really uh, honing in on the disposable category. And that's really where the power of this is. The United States is a very convenience-driven culture, in particular, you know, and on-premise venues and so forth, right? So that that's where this really fits and it sort of gives us the first critical strategic step to get the consumer on the path of, of recycling more. Do you think aluminum is the answer to other problems? Well, aluminum is, is certainly the answer to the plastic crisis globally, right? So, and it's abundantly clear that more needs to be done in that area, right? So I read a stat yesterday that, you know, we're on average, you know, we're ingesting a credit card every every week, you know, as a U.S. consumer, which is very scary and not a fun thought to entertain. But we are in a crisis with plastic. So this is all about really elevating aluminum as the ultimate solution, given the recyclability of the substrate. Certainly, aluminum plays a role in other industries as well. Other industries are looking at it, like automotive and so forth. But at Ball, we're razor sharply focused on really you know, providing a strategic, long-term solution against the plastic crisis. Sebastian Seedoff, General Manager of Aluminum Cups for Ball in Boulder. Those cups will be at the Super Bowl Sunday. Okay, what issues are most important to you this election? What do you want us to focus on in our coverage of 2020 races? CPR News is sitting down with voters in coffee shops, libraries, even at knitting circles all across the state to hear your answers. Our Voter Voices Project has been in Colorado's Four Corners region this week, and my colleague Avery Lill is on the line. Hi, Avery. Hey, Ryan. You're in Durango right now, I understand. But uh, tell me about some of the other places you've spent time this week. I drove in on Monday, and I've been splitting time between Durango, Cortez, Ignacio, Toyac, on the Yumatu Reservation. And I've been talking with a lot of voters along CPR, along with CPR's climate and environment reporter, Allison Herrera, and our photographer, Hart Vandenberg. And I'm also reporting several other stories while I'm here. I look forward to what those stories will be. Uh, where exactly have you been meeting up with voters? Uh, coffee shops, for one. The Ute Coffee Shop in Cortez is also a cafe. Uh, the Pine Maker in Durango. Cortez is in Montezuma County, so it has a pretty strong agricultural sector. Sector, And we've got a real mix of people who identify as liberal and conservative. Durango is about an hour down the road in La Plata County, and it leans liberal. Uh, Fort Lewis College is here, and there's a big winter festival, snow down. It just kicked off Wednesday, so there's a real party atmosphere in the air right now. Snow down. Uh, now, are you hearing themes in what people care about? Uh, yeah. One thing that's true for people who have different political stripes is they don't think state or national lawmakers know enough about what's happening in southwest Colorado and a lot of people think that rural communities are left out of conversations when it comes to funding and policies. Um, several people brought up health care, specifically insurance. A few people I spoke with are worried about high deductibles and medical debt. And they also feel tied to jobs just for health coverage. And they see those issues as being tied to the economies of places like Mancus or Cortez. What else did you hear? Um, conservative voters we talked to, they're concerned about government expansion they don't want elected officials to champion what they see as liberal social issues. Uh, just to name a few more, people talked about climate change, public lands, education, especially early childhood education and child care and mental health services or the lack of those things. 
You mentioned you're working on a few stories. Avery, what can we expect when you get back? Absolutely. Um, two Native American tribes have reservations in Colorado, the Ute Mountain Ute and the Southern Ute. Right, and you cover indigenous affairs for CPR. Uh, exactly. Um, and the Southern Ute Museum in Ignacio, it's displaying 11, paint, or 11 paintings by 11 Native artists, and most of those artists are from this region. Russell Box Sr. is a Southern Ute tribal elder, and I met with him at the exhibition to talk about his work. And Box paints with these bold colors, and notably there's this really deep turquoise that he uses that for him symbolizes the spirit world. And he sees his paintings as storytelling, sharing traditions with both younger generations and with people who aren't Southern Ute. So his paintings reflect ceremonies like sun dance and bear dance. Um, and that show is going through April. And I should say that one of Russell Black Sr.'s paintings is in the Smithsonian Museum of the American Indian. All right. So more from him when Avery gets back. CPR's Avery Lill, who's been in the four corners of Colorado, reporting on indigenous affairs, hearing from voters. Okay, state lawmakers are closer to repealing the death penalty. The measure has passed a crucial vote in the state Senate, CPR's Andrew Kenny reports. Democrats have tried to repeal Colorado's death penalty six times in recent years. This time, it appears they finally have the votes to get it done, including some Republican support. But it hasn't come easy, and it has meant going against one of their own. So we need to be thinking about what side of history we want to be on Because right now, it is all on the line. That was State Senator Rhonda Fields. She's a Democrat, but she's one of the biggest reasons that repeal didn't happen last year. She's opposed because her son and his fiancée were murdered, and the killers are on death row today. I'm here to tell his story because he can't. Fields and Republican senators critiqued the repeal bill for hours on the Senate floor. Both sides raised money arguments. It can cost millions to prosecute a capital case, but some district attorneys argue that the threat of the death penalty saves money because it helps them strike plea deals and avoid costly trials. However, repeal advocates like Senator Julie Gonzalez, a Democrat, said the real concern was a moral one. Right now, the statutes for the state of Colorado say it is not okay to murder unless you're being put to death. That just strikes me as wrong. Republican Senator John Cook, a former sheriff, argued that killing can be justified as punishment for murder. We all believe that each life is precious, unique, and irreplaceable. The death penalty is the only penalty that approximates the value of what was taken. After hours of debate, the senators approved the repeal bill 19 to 15. Once it's through the Senate, it will head to the House, where it is also expected to pass. I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. And I'm Ryan Warner. You may have heard us talking just earlier there about what issues might be important to you this election. We do want to hear from you. You can take our 2020 election survey. I've pinned a tweet with the link to that survey at CPR Warner. Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour on CPR News. This Monday, CPR News will carry special coverage of the results of the Iowa caucus. It's the first of many big dates during primary season, and results and analysis from NPR hosts will begin at 6 p.m. Count on CPR News to keep you informed about the biggest stories along the 2020 campaign trail. That's special coverage of the Iowa caucus beginning at 6 p.m. Monday here on CPR News.
The infamous doomsday clock recently ticked up to 100 seconds before midnight. The symbolic timepiece run by Nobel Prize-winning scientists represents how close humanity is to self-destruction. Between failing nuclear treaties and climate change, this is as close to midnight as the clock's ever been. But there are business opportunities in everything, even the apocalypse. To tell us about one of them, CPR's Dan Boyce traveled into the mountains west of Colorado Springs. Let's start inside a modest mountain home with a quaint two-story tower built on the side. And right now, up in that tower, you'll find a peaceful room with a 360-degree view of winter's splendor. It'd be a really nice place to sit and vacation, enjoy. Uh, but if necessary, it's, it's a guard post. A guard post. Clear lines of fire there, down there. Drew Miller is pointing out the windows to where hypothetical marauders might attempt to raid this vacation home slash fortress, a fortress against the fall of civilization. He says the U.S. and humanity face a lot of existential threats, some as old as time. Super volcanoes and comets from the atmosphere coming in and causing havoc. And others spawning from the latest human innovations. Nanotechnology, for example. If you haven't figured it out yet, Miller is a prepper. A title he doesn't mind, even though he thinks it's gotten a bad rap. Miller is behind a business venture that specifically caters to others who share his apocalyptic outlook. And he says the preppers he works with are not ridiculous, not caricatures. Uh, these are people who are smartly concerned, want some insurance so that if the electric system goes down, a pandemic occurs, you know, they can survive. And Miller has the kind of background you might trust if you were looking for someone to get you through the end of the world. Served 30 years in the military, mainly as an intelligence officer. Along the way, getting his master's and Ph.D. from Harvard. My dissertation topic was underground nuclear defense shelters and field fortifications for NATO troops. It's cold and snowing hard. We're walking the boundaries of the property, which is pushed up against a hillside right on the border of a national forest. At one corner, we come to another lookout, this one of stone, almost a rudimentary castle turret. Those are called bastions, and they're designed to give your guards a way to shoot at bad guys on the other side of the wall. There have been companies specializing in fortified homes and extravagant underground bunkers for decades. They have absolutely gorgeous facilities, fancy rooms, uh, but, you know, not many people can afford it. And that is where Miller's business pitch comes in. The common man's survival shelter. Well, I don't know if I'll use that word, but I'll go with middle class. He calls it Fortitude Ranch. This is the company's second Colorado location, currently under construction. There's also one in West Virginia, others planned in Wisconsin and Nevada. We came up with the kind of a country club business model idea. The cost is about $1,000 per person per year. And we make the rules. You know, we guarantee our members will provide you this service in good time. We'll keep you alive during a bad time. Uh, Wait, wait, did you hear that part in the middle? We guarantee our members will provide you this service in good time. Providing service in good times. His company's slogan is prepare for the worst, enjoy the present. Until Armageddon arrives, membership gets you 10 days per year at any of the Fortitude Ranch locations, all in secret, wild venues. Go on, relax, get away from it all. Because if you don't need a guard in the gun turret, what a fine place to birdwatch. 
the facilities here will be pretty spartan. It's certainly not a lavish vacation. The solar and wind tower will be in the center and then feeding lines out to the different buildings. And the place looks nothing like Miller says it will during a catastrophe. There are no high wooden walls surrounding it, for one thing. Not yet. That's because he does not want passersby to guess this is a prepper ranch. You know, we don't want to look too alarming (laughs) and out of the ordinary. And then if doomsday does come, building the walls, planting the garden, hunting, fishing, that will be the members' responsibility. It will be important for their mental health. If you're just sitting around with nothing to do, you're going to be worrying about, you know, what happened to my daughter in San Francisco? And, you know, so we want to keep people busy. A community, a safe place to start society over again. That is, if you paid the fee. Somewhere in the mountains west of Colorado Springs, Dan Boyce, CPR News. Our musical guests today got their big break when they won the band contest at the Telluride Bluegrass Festival. That was in 2014, the same year Westward deemed Trout Steak Revival Colorado's next great bluegrass band. They've been a mainstay on the scene ever since. We grew up beneath the sun, always waiting for the moon to come out. Hand in hand, how we walk those miles, back when you know it made you smile. Then it all comes crashing down, we both drift from the sound of the wind, blowing through the pines again. Well, today, Trout Steak Revival, based in Denver, releases their new album, The Light We Bring. The band is made up of Bevan Foley on fiddle, Casey Houlihan on bass, Will Coster on dobro and guitar, Travis McNamara on banjo, and all four of them are piled into our studio. Hi, gang. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Happy release day. Thank you. Thank you. What, what does a release day feel like? It feels like... Oh, man, like Empire Records, like Rex Manning Day. Happy Rex Manning Day. <laughs> Happy <laughs> Rex Manning Day. <laughs> like Christmas morning. Totally. Like Happy Christmas Christmas morning. Day. You wake up before your alarm, you know? Yeah, you was. do? Yeah. Yep. And, and is it a feeling of joy, of nervousness? Like, how will the world receive this child I've produced? I, yeah. It's a little bit of both. It's the feeling that's like, you can't tell if you're anxious or if you're uh, excited. There's... Uh, the, I, I did the same thing. I woke up at 6.45 this morning. It was like Christmas morning. Just that, excited to be in here. That's yeah. the voice, by the way, of Travis McNamara mm-hmm. there. Uh, okay, this is your fifth full-length record, uh, which all decided to self-produce. It's a more diverse sound, I think, for, for Trout Steak. The instrumentation includes brass, woodwinds, orchestral strings. Was that a goal from the outset, or did that inspiration come about once you were in the studio, Bevan? Uh, I think part of it was a goal from the outset. We had done a a few things like that on the last album, but most of them were just performed by the band. Like I did some layered string parts and stuff. But we've had like the real opportunity over the last couple years um, to just experiment with a wider sound and get friends on stage with us and just... Yeah, a lot of experimentation. Did that mean having friends in the studio as well, Will? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, Bevan wrote a, a string section to to the song uh, Only a Moment on the record, and a slew of our friends came in the studio and, and played, uh, played strings on that song. Only a moment, moment, a moment. 
Casey Houlihan, do you like the recording process? Do you like studio work? I do. I love it. Um, when Will and I first moved out to Colorado in like 2005, Will um, owns a bunch of recording equipment and sort of set up like a home studio. And that was really how we spent most of our free time. Um, not that I'm incredibly comfortable in the studio. There's still like a little bit of... Um, not the perfectionist, but just you want to perform your best. You know, you really want to do your best. And I don't know. I just now that we have experience going in there, it's a it's a lot more comfortable and uh, it's really fun. Especially with this group, you know, Bevan makes crockpot meals and uh, uh-huh. and we bring you know my mother in law makes scones and everybody kind of brings snacks and we just it's we really just set up like a a, a home like experience. Bevan, what did you cook for the recording of this album? Oh, usually there's some sort of like Italian sausage and marinara oh, in yeah. a crock pot. <laughs> That's the good stuff. Um, salads always, just like some healthy options so we don't have to leave. Have you discovered the crock pot liners? Do you know about those? Um, I do know about them. I, I know that we have yeah. focused on plastic so far in this program, and they are plastic, but they are, make crock pot meals so easy because you just remove the sleeve. Yeah. Do you use them? No, because I get a little freaked out by the plastic. I get it. I get it. I mean, I also understand like in a studio, you you do have the opportunity to do a take, you know, five, 10, 300 times if you want. Travis, how do you work with that perfectionism? Yeah, good question. Um, well, with with trout steak, we do as much of we as much as we can of it live. So, uh, you know, it, it takes it takes all of us being on the same page. Like you, you get into the booth and we're all playing through these songs together. We're taking full takes all the way through. Oh. So you got to bring it to 100 every time. And so, you know, a lot of times we'll do seven, eight t- full takes of a song, like all the way through. And uh, usually it seems like take number four is our magic mm-hmm. take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Take number four. Okay, <laughs> that, that's when you hit your sweet spot. Yeah. Uh, Bevan, you're the lone Colorado native in the group. Travis, Will, and Casey relocated here from Michigan. Mm. None of you actually grew up around bluegrass. Bevan, you're classically trained as a violinist. Uh, Casey, I read your first instrument was trombone. Correct. But I and actually, I'm from Wisconsin, too. Not that it's that much different, but it is the other side of the lake. <laughs> I think it's important. I feel like, you know, my friends and family listening would be like, you're not from Michigan. You're not from Michigan. Yeah. Don't try to be a Michigan. No, 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 no. I don't hold my hand up and point to a spot on my hand about where I'm from. Right. <laughs> it's because Michigan is shaped like a glove, folks. Okay. Okay. Uh, but I, I understand that you all got your first exposure to bluegrass around the campfire. Uh, for the dudes, it was at a summer camp, I think. What, what's that story? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, I my, my dad was an art teacher, and he got a job being the art director at a summer camp uh, called Camp Henry in Michigan, Nuevo, Michigan. And uh, Travis went there as a kid also. And we met when we were young. And then we started working there. And uh, Casey got a job working at the, at the summer camp too. And so, bluegrass was just a part of this summer camp in well, Michigan? I, I guess it was more like acoustic guitars and, and djembe kind of. Yeah. Kinda <laughs> it was more like, like Neil Young... Bob Dylan of the band. It was, you know, like sing-along stuff with the kids during the day, but then at the night, it would be all the counselors hanging out around the campfire and just playing songs that we were into. And uh, so that that kind of got, that at least got me into acoustic music mm. and acoustic guitars and stuff like that. And then it was coming out to Colorado and starting to go to these like bluegrass festivals, like the Telluride Bluegrass Festival for us, was that was our Mecca pilgrimage that we would do every year with all of our friends. 
And uh, around those campfires, everybody was playing bluegrass songs. You know, that was just like the language that was in Colorado and mm. and hearing all these cool songs from all these people that we didn't know before. And uh, then, you know, we kind of fanned out the instrumentation and, and started picking up that language a bit. Bevan, how did bluegrass find you? Well, after college, I started playing music with my friend Jay Stratton, and we started a little group called the Mile Markers, like a folk duet, Um, and then ended up getting invited to this camp out called, I think, Picking in the Pines that doesn't exist anymore, um, just north of Colorado Springs in Black Forest. So I was just like, all of a sudden, there were these people like circled up around campfires playing tunes that everyone knew and a guy playing the bones. And I was like, what is this? Like, it was amazing. I am about to ask a question that might be embarrassingly naive. Bones, like actual bones? Yeah, I think they were rib bones. And you just have like, it's kind of like a castanet. Is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Ah. So like, you just have one like two bones in each hand and you click them together. Belonging to some creature, some animal. Yeah. <laughs> one, one would hope. Okay. Uh, in, the, in the early days of Trout Steak Revival, and that's who joins us, you're listening to Colorado Matters, Trout Steak Revival, it's album release day for them. Uh, but in the early days, you had a few steady gigs as the house band at various bars and restaurants, including the Buck Snort. Oh, yeah. in, Isn't that amazing? In Pine, Colorado, just off 285. I've been once and never forgotten it. I, I think there's a sign that says, like, if you start to get impatient for your food, calm down. Yeah. It'll get there eventual, eventually. <laughs> well, and really, it's trying to get people out there that, that it's it's out in the middle of nowhere. It's like this, you know, it's a gutted cabin that, that they turn into a bar um, in this town of like 850 people. But trying to get our friends out there, everybody was sure that they were lost. And then it was like, no, just keep going down that road. And it was like, you know, 10 more minutes and then the buck snorts at the end of it. So... I do you do you miss those kinds of small restaurant small bar residencies or is that still a part of of your experience will uh I guess there was a certain magic back then you know when we were more just playing music for free beer <laughs> and uh yeah you know there's something that I that I miss about that for sure I wish you love I wish you I will ask the question, why Trout Steak Revival? But I'm going to hold off for a few minutes. Okay. Um, On your previous couple of albums, you worked with a producer named Chris Pandolfi. He's the banjoist with the infamous String Dusters. I'm curious, uh, Casey, maybe you want to take this question. What you learned from your experience uh, with Pandolfi that maybe you brought to this new record on your own? Yeah, definitely. I think um, his his input was invaluable on the last two albums. And so when we decided to 
um, produce this ourselves, we definitely were trying to take everything we learned from that, which was really, you know, it, it's not about perfection. It's about vibe and it's about feel. Huh. And so when we get in there, like Trav said, we might do eight takes, but <clears throat> the role of a producer is really to kind of like zoom out a little bit and be sort of a, not an uneducated listener, but like a, a guy that comes in without any like pretense about what it's supposed to sound like. And so when you listen to a take, you're like, wow, that one has incredible energy. Like, yeah, there was a, a couple mistakes, maybe, or maybe not even, maybe it just wasn't like perfect, but that's not what we were going for. So really, Chris, I think, brought that element to our to our studio experience. So that, that's the voice of Casey Houlihan, who's on vocal and bass for Trout Steak Revival. Bevan Foley, what would you add? What did you bring to this record that you learned from the previous ones? Uh, Bevan plays fiddle, is on vocals. I think that it, just like Casey said, it gave us like the ability to like figure out what the best take was. Um, but also like even before we got into the studio, I think Chris taught us a lot about arranging our songs and making sure they had good endings and beginnings. And um, let's talk about that. A good ending. What does that mean? Really, you just have to have an ending. I remember. At, we were playing in Lions during the Rocky Grass Festival at a bar, not in the festival, like a long time ago. And Greg Garrison told us, you just have to have endings. Because we would just like kind of look at each other and be like, how are we going to end this? <laughs> <laughs> and then we'd kind of like either like peter out or just like do like a, a shaving a haircut kind bum, of bum. Yeah. <laughs> like ending like <laughs> some, classic just like silly things so it's just like a simple thing but i think we started learning that from everyone and we're like oh that's a cool ending let's do that one okay you, yeah you, you don't want to confuse listeners you know yeah i walk into the studio every day hoping <laughs> <laughs> the opposite of that okay why don't we hear another song from the new album the light we bring this is arrows in the dark You wake up in the morning with the birds and sunrise singing. And sometimes you feel like a sunset southwestern slowly sinking. Out of touch with the meaning, out of words for the rhyme. Out there waiting for the hook, but just keep choking on the line. What's this dream that we're living? Not the one I thought it'd be In the distance receding There's a pattern repeating Taking aim and shooting arrows in the dark I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the lyrics sound like they're about I don't know, like the struggle with life on the road maybe the life of an artist is that something that you're feeling at this point in your career, Travis? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, uh, Will wrote the lyrics to the song, but we're, you know, I think on this record especially, we're trying to write more from life. And uh, What were you writing from before then? Well, I think uh, we're all kind of growing as songwriters, I think. And uh, when we're younger or maybe when i when i was younger i i think maybe you know you try to write more from a projection or there's more of a construction of ah. a personality that you're trying to get out there but 
that those things don't seem to hold water for me up on stage after time after time. They're not authentic. They're not authentic. And like the more that the more that we can write about, the more that I can write about things that are actually happening to me and that I'm going through and that are places of uh, vulnerable emotion that I'm experiencing experiencing right now. Those ones they just seem to connect a little bit better. Uh, what are you emotional about these days? Um, I think. I mean, some of the stuff that I was writing about on the record was um, more love things, I guess. Uh, things that I'm going through in personal relationships, just uh, uh, things that I'm learning about myself and uh, and trying to trying to speak more honestly about them. Um, Will, do you want to add here since you wrote the song we just heard? Um, are are you frustrated with the? The tr- the tour life, like the band life, do I you know? I, interpret- I guess there are there are moments uh, when when things can can seem a little heavy being out on the road, um, and that was I guess that was kind of the the start of some of my lyric writing on the song, and then and then there's some I guess in the bridge of the song, which we didn't quite get to on the, on the little <laughs> clip there, but uh, that kind of it opens up questions of like, well, you know. If if we are going to do this, how are we going to do this so that so that it uh, it feels great, you know, what we're doing? Mm. Uh, and I guess an analogy. How do we make it work for us? Yeah, an analogy is like you know, if you're if you're fishing, and you only think about like catching a big fish is the uh, the success of your day, then you, most of your day is not going to be that fun. Huh. So so you know, we want to enjoy the fishing. I There's guess. such a theme emerging in this conversation, which is <laughs> to be happy with imperfection, to be happy with struggle. I hear that when you talk about the studio tracks. I hear that when you talk about tour life. Let's get to something far less profound. Trout Steak Revival. <laughs> yeah. how, how did this name come about? <laughs> Bevan, do you, who wants to tell this story? I can tell an abbreviated Casey. version. How about that? Sure. Um, so essentially, uh, we were playing at the Buck Snort without... Um, well, I guess we had the South Platte River Ramblers is what we were using as our name. It was more of a placeholder. Um, I don't hate that name. It's not terrible. No. <clears throat> but so uh, we were like, you know, it's we felt like it wasn't um, really us. And so we went on this backpacking trip and we came out with a name, Trout Steak Revival, but it, it sort of came about while we were fishing and we were not catching any fish. It was raining. And... It was like, you know, the, the catchphrase became catch me a trout steak because we were like, we didn't bring enough food. You know, we thought we were going to catch a lot of fish, but we weren't catching fish. <laughs> and so it became this like, it's sort of a joke, but like, seriously, like catch me a huge trout so that we can all eat tonight. <laughs> and uh, so trout steak. And then we were like, trout steak revival is like a cool band name. And uh, we like, I think Will wrote it down in a notebook and I wrote it down. And I remember like the next day we like kind of looked at each other like, is that like, is this legit? Is this a real name? Like, can we do this? And we did. And then like within a month or two, Will's dad, who's an artist, made this amazingly cool like drawing of a trout that actually has like a steak cut out of it. And you're like, you could look at it and you're like, that's a trout steak. And we were like, Trout. It's been solidified. It's now. done. Yeah. Trout steak yeah. revival. And a, a, a great part about that, we we took the. I think I called the owner of the Buck Snort and I said, "We have a name. We have a new name of our band. It's Trout Steak Revival." You know, so you can take off the South South Platte River Ramblers, and she's like, mm, 
No. <laughs> yeah, she liked. It. <laughs> uh, and not not to be confused with leftover salmon, the Jamgrass Band. By That's, the way, yeah. oh, we have one minute left. Mm. We're going to do a round robin. It's kind of like the newlywed game. Are you ready for this? But <laughs> yes. for a band, uh, who is most likely to be late to a gig in this group? It's got to be me. Speak up. Travis. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me or Travis. Tra- everyone knows it's Travis. Who's the best cook? I feel like we might have already answered that. Oh, that's a question mark because everyone has their yeah. We are all very I think skilled we're in the all kitchen. Really great, really cooks. Yeah, bravo. Although I'd yeah. say Bevan probably cooks the most for us. Okay, who's the worst driver? I don't know. Yeah, that one's a, that's a really sensitive one. But okay, <laughs> uh, we're gonna pass. Pass. You're gonna. I'm pass. the worst mountain driver. You're the worst mountain driver. Okay, thanks, Trout Steak Revival. We really appreciate it. Good Thank luck you guys with the so new much. album. Thank thanks, you. Ryan. Big fans. Yes. We heard from Thank Bevan so Foley, Casey Houlihan, Will Coster, and Travis McNamara of the Denver Bluegrass Band Trout Steak Revival. Their new album, The Light We Bring, is out today. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I want you to 